Morning. I can't tell you how many times on a Sunday night I found myself walking on the M4 in the passing lane in heavy traffic, um, hoping that somebody doesn't uh, slide into the, uh, you know, just run me over, basically. Uh, maybe you've had a similar experience. Uh, if you're coming from Campbelltown, if you're coming from the south, if you're coming from the north, it's pretty much the same. Uh, on a Sunday night, especially on a nice weekend, all roads lead into Sydney, all traffic is coming into Sydney, and if you're uh, on a motorcycle, uh, you crack your uh, helmet open, you, you know, you have to undo your gear a bit because everything's going to uh, become pretty uncomfortable as you stand there or as you walk there on the motorway. Um, it's just the reality of life in Sydney, isn't it, that the huge crowds of people are coming into Sydney, and uh, you have to adjust to those realities. Um, it would have been very similar, I think, for Jesus and the crowds that are on their way to celebrate the Passover. All roads lead to Jerusalem, and they would have felt like an army on the march. At first, it was Jesus plus the 12, and then as you read on, it becomes uh, Jesus and the 72. And now, there would have been thousands and even tens of thousands of pilgrims marching on Jerusalem, singing their psalms that speak of how God will one day send a king. Here is one of the songs they sang, Psalm 132. I'll read just a, a verse or two of it. Uh, this would have been uh, something that they would have shared in their experience on the way to Jerusalem. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. What a thrill. They would have thought of themselves as an army on the move. They would have felt like the time has come. The one that we've been singing about is the man in our midst. This is the king that we've been waiting for. And the proof would have been pretty obvious. When Jesus fed 5,000 people in John chapter 6, it says, John tells us, they sought to make him king by force. And since then, he's been doing more and more signs. Clearly, he is the one that uh, the prophets have spoken of. He's the one who will fulfill these expectations. And all the while, he's been making fools of the people who oppress the people the religious leaders who keep piling burdens on their back. And all that is going to come to an end when we get to Jerusalem and Jesus is king. He'll deal with the Romans. He's going to toss Herod onto the trash heap of history. And then some killjoy comes up to him and says, will only a few be saved? Is everyone on the road a follower of Jesus? Is everyone a disciple of Jesus? Will only a few be saved? The last week we talked about the narrowness of the door. Now it becomes more and more evident. The great crowds are being narrowed down. In Luke chapter 14, the first 14 verses talked about a party at a Pharisee's house. And it exposed the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. In 14, 15 to 24, it talked about a party at God's house. And exposed God's generosity to sinners. So who gets in? those who see the radical cost. What will it cost to enter the kingdom? Nothing. What will it cost to enter the kingdom? Everything. The gospel of sins forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ offers the power of God, the presence of God, and the perspective of God. It doesn't offer what the world wants, though. Health and wealth, fame and fortune, peace and prosperity, surf and turf, dinner and dessert. Jesus, in the second half of Luke 14,
returns to this army on the march to Jerusalem. And as he does so, he speaks two sayings, two parables, and a riddle. I'd like to look at those uh, with you uh, this morning. The first thing he says, saying number one is, unless you hate your family, you cannot be my disciple. So you have to wonder what this conversation is going to look like. Hi, Philip. How's the wife? Hater. <laughs> your, your parents? Yeah, hate them too. Your mother-in-law? You have to ask. <laughs> what about your children? Yeah, you know I hate them. What about that motorcycle? No, I love that. Oh, no, I hate that too. Um, this would have been just as confronting in Jesus' day as it is in ours. We say that it would be morally wrong and it would go against our human nature to speak of hating our family. For Jesus' co-travelers, it would have been all that too. And even more, it would have been a violation of the law of Moses and even of teaching that Jesus himself has given. Uh, Jesus brought up that command to honor your father and mother. And now he's saying you need to hate your father and mother. Well, this sure gets your attention, doesn't it? Jesus wants them to hear, but not just hear. As the last line of verse 35 makes clear, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. He wants us to hear, to absorb. You've got ears, so use them. But you also need to think and feel and absorb the impact of the words that Jesus is bringing to us. So he is hard and he's direct. And he's saying, if you want to be on my side, you need to hate everybody. He's speaking of a deliberate preference which generates focus and action. Jesus is Lord, and we're called to have preferences and focus and a set of actions that conforms to this fact when it comes to Jesus. Jesus has no rivals. In the ancient world, love is an activity that honors, and hate is an activity that shames or dishonors. It's not about the emotion so much, as in our use of the term, uh, hate, love. And it's not linked to the heart as a seat of emotion. To love with all your heart means to be directed by your innermost being, by your core being, not with your emotions, which, by the way, are almost always presented as a danger. Now, they're not bad in themselves, but they're hijacked by our nature. And it inclines in the wrong direction. And the mind justifies what those emotions desire, what those longings desire. Hence the slogan, the mind justifies what the heart desires. In recent years, we've seen that extend to pretty much everything. We can justif justify pretty much everything based on the way we feel about things. So when we talk about hating our parents, well, the father is mentioned first because obligation to honor the father was universal, at least in that time, uh, maybe less so in, in ours. Bible, the Bible teaches to honor father and mother. It also demands that husbands love their wives. It says much about caring for your children. These are all expected and, and even required allegiances, the things that define who you are. But Jesus says we need to reprioritize. And for some of us, it will be easy. And for some of us, it will be the hardest, most costly thing we will ever do. What do you love more than Jesus? Some good things? 
do you maybe love your sins more than you love Jesus? Maybe you've got a problem related to, I don't know, theft that nobody knows about. Maybe it relates to sex or to lying. The fact is we often love our own sins and with the mind we justify what the heart desires. And I suspect as we hear Jesus speaking, this becomes a moment for us to examine ourselves and repent and let Jesus remove that burden if this speaks to us. He loves you enough to die for you. How much do you love him? The cost of the gospel is so often seen in family relationships. Last year in this very uh, spot, we had students stand up uh, from other countries to talk about their experience and the fact that they can't go home to their country, those countries are being torn apart. Um, I know many students who have come through college who have uh, found that the gospel has cost them family relationships. I attended a baptism with my wife not too long ago. Uh, at the beginning, they said, no photography, please, uh, because the um, person being baptized may have been in danger if his family found out that he had become a follower of Jesus. Yes, being a Christian for some people will cost them things most of us simply can't even imagine. There are anti-family sayings, if I can describe them that way, in Luke chapter 8, 9, 12, 18, and 21. This is something Jesus wants us to think about. As he works through these things, he talks about father, mother, wife, children, brother, and sister, and look where he goes next, even their own life, even their own life. And I think this points to the next verse, which is about carrying the cross. Um, Half-hearted commitment is dangerous and unsustainable. Having two lords doesn't allow for certainty and confidence in a world full of doubt. Do you doubt? Have you counted the cost? Sometimes those things go hand in hand. Saying number two is, unless you carry your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Relationship towards family, well, what, what is harder than that? How about your relationship toward yourself? Unless you carry your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Um, Jesus and Luke can't carry his own cross. Simon of Cyrene has to do it. Thus, it's not necessarily a literal statement, but it's still linked to death and the death of the self. Jesus doesn't carry his own cross, but he certainly bears his cross, doesn't he? He embraces death for us. What would it mean for you to completely hand over your life? I don't know for you, and you don't know for me, because we can't see into each other's hearts and see what is held onto with a tight fist. But God knows, and he's given, well, he's given me so many great things I survey my life and I see God's blessing everywhere I turn. God has been good in giving to me a wife and, and children and a home and my office full of books and a door with a lock on it and uh, could go on. I, I, I really couldn't ask for more. And these are all gifts from God. But do I love them more than I love Jesus? Am I more committed to them than I am to God? Do I love the created thing more than the creator? Or is my love for them an extension of a prior love for God? I don't know. I really don't know. How can I know unless God takes all those things away from me? Abraham's story in Genesis begins when he's told to leave everything 
and embark on this journey to a land that God would show him. And it more or less ends in Genesis when he's told to sacrifice his only son. It begins and ends with Abraham being told to give everything to God. What if he asked you to do those things? It's a measure of his grace that he hasn't taken everything away. But would you be willing to give to him if he asked? Would I be willing to give to him if he asked? Jesus continues. The point of it is that unless you give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. He uses a couple illustrations to make the point. He talks about building a tower. He says, make no mistake, the cost is great, and underestimating the cost is crazy. Uh, one of the, the great stories I read was the expedition of Sir John Franklin and 138 officers of the British uh, uh, Navy. They were on an expedition to find a Northwest Passage that would cross Canada and get them to the Pacific Ocean. And so they were uh, equipped with a few uh, sailing vessels, and they carried an auxiliary steam engine and a 12-day supply of coal to make this expedition. It was expected to take two to three years, but they had a 12-day supply of coal. That's not all they brought. They also brought a 1,200-volume library, a hand organ that could play up to 50 tunes. They brought incredible china. They brought cutlery. And they had sterling silver knives, forks, and spoons that were each engraved with the name of the person on their very ornate handles. They didn't bring any special clothes for exploring the Arctic, only the, the uniforms that Her Majesty's Navy would normally bring. And where it gets interesting is that for the next 20 years, the Inuits of that area would stumble upon skeletons holding things like chocolate, tea, really fancy cutlery, and clothes which were entirely inappropriate to the task. Sometimes you need to count the cost. Sometimes you need to get it right. And Jesus is saying it's really important in this situation. Construction Week magazine in November of 2014 ran an article on the 10 tallest buildings that were never completed. Jesus says, you'll look ridiculous if you do this and it doesn't pan out. The world will remember this and ridicule you for it. And in their case, it's true. And I could run down the list of towers that were started and sometimes stopped. They were going to be thousands of feet tall, and some of them didn't even last for months before the company went bust. Uh, I grew up in Milwaukee. And in 1973, a three-kilometer bridge was built over the, the harbor, uh, the, the river in Milwaukee. And it was unused until access roads were built for it years later. And so basically through my childhood, we would laugh about the stupidity of a government, a local government that can build a bridge that is so impressive that literally doesn't go anywhere. There was, I don't know if you remember the name John Belushi, but there was actually a movie with John Belushi where they used that as almost like a prop in the movie because it was um, just such a ridiculous reality. Well, in 1998, 25 years later, they finally built uh, motorway connections to this bridge. Um, unfortunately, two months later, a good bit of it collapsed. And uh, that's reality in some places. And it just sounds so stupid. And that's what Jesus is saying. There is an incredible cost. And to get this wrong makes you look the fool. Don't make promises you can't keep. Don't make commitments that you're not going to follow through on. And what about a king? He uses another Im image to make the same point. 
If you are a king and you're about to go to war and you sit down and you say, I've got 10,000 men. Hey, that's a huge army. 10,000 men. Alexander the Great set out to conquer the world with an army of about 10,000. It, it grew a bit as he, as he went along. Uh, but the fact is 20,000, well, that's a bigger army. So you stop and say, can my 10,000 beat 20,000? And the answer is probably not. So you start to do the sums. You start to calculate these things. And we're talking about tens of thousands of people marching on Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, are you asking the right questions? You think I'm going to be your king. Have you counted the cost of membership in my kingdom and in my army? You need to identify the cost or at least hire a really good accountant. Jesus is telling you exactly what this costs, and the cost is everything. How could this not have an urgent tone as he draws ever nearer to Jerusalem? Have you counted the cost? Half-hearted commitment is a dangerous thing. But it also, for me, raises that question, how can something be free but cost everything? In fact, maybe that isn't even all that unusual. When I got married, it was pretty much free, but it cost me everything. <laughs> Same goes for my wife. Having children is free, but costs you everything. Getting into Australia for us was free, unless somebody paid some fee that I don't even remember. But being here has cost me everything. The result in each case was an entirely new life. That's the cost Jesus is talking about. Give him your life, and if you do, he will give you a new eternal life in return. Verse 23, the kingdom costs nothing. People will be compelled to go into the party so that the house, God's house will be full, but now we learn that it will cost everything. And the last thing Jesus says is a riddle. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Salt is good is not intended as a culinary observation. Salt was used to flavor and preserve food. It was used to do a host of other things. It was used to treat the soil in that it would both kill weeds as it sunk into it, and it would provide minerals to enrich the soil. So it was actually a good use of, soil, of salt to throw it onto the soil. And when I saw that manure thing, I thought, okay, that's what you do when you're disposing of it. Just chuck it on the manure. But no, there again, apparently, throwing, putting the salt on manure was a positive thing because manure can ferment too fast and salt slows down the fermentation of the manure process. Now, this isn't something that I engage in in my da daily work life, but maybe some of you come from an area where, where that would be relevant. What Jesus is saying is that salt does things, but what if it doesn't? What would you do with a heater that doesn't heat? What would you do with an air conditioner that doesn't condition air? What would you do with a student that doesn't study? <laughs> it is fit neither for this nor that. It is thrown out. <laughs> Salt that loses the abilities that define it is good for nothing. One might even say that salt that isn't salty isn't really salt. It's nothing. It's useless. 
Jesus earlier was talking about joining in, about counting the cost, and now I think Jesus is talking about people who join in, but they lose the very quality that ought to define them. Starting well isn't enough. Giving everything at the start isn't enough. Some of us need to think seriously and maybe repeatedly about whether we've maintained our first convictions. Or have we lost our first love? Have faith and love grown cold? Salt is good, but what if it loses that very quality that makes it salt? So what should we say in the end? The gospel is a message of joy and freedom, even if it means the pain of rejection and then death. But this isn't the entirety of the message, is it? There is joy and freedom. But for a moment, as we consider Jesus' approach to the cross, we're being forced to ask if we're with him and what it means to be with him. Jesus wasn't going on a picnic. The Christian life is no picnic. He's going to the cross. But there is a feast in the end. Let's pray. Father, we do appeal to you for help. Please give us understanding. We pray that you would teach us what has value. We pray that you would help us endure. We ask you to help us run the race. And we dare ask to help us finish well. We pray that in this we would glorify the Lord Jesus who gives his life for us. And so we pray it in his name. Amen.